This is Food First Michigan on 760 WJR. Sponsored by the Food Bank Council of Michigan. Creating a food secure state. And by Farm Bureau Insurance of Michigan. Now here are your hosts, Dr. Phil Knight and Jerry Brisson. Welcome everyone and thanks for listening. Over the years since 1959, the poverty rate has risen to a high of 14.9%. But over the past six years prior to the pandemic, the poverty rate had moved down incrementally each year. It has stubbornly stayed at around 10% of the population and has never dropped below it. On Food First Michigan, we have said for years that a job is the biggest tool in the anti-hunger toolbox. And we are mostly correct in our statement. But upon further review, I have found that the unemployment rate, what many believe would be a major catalyst to help people get out of poverty, isn't quite the cure we believed or hoped it would be for families and individuals who are trapped in poverty. In 2019, the unemployment rate was down to approximately 5.5%. It's even less today. But poverty rate has stayed around 10 to 12%. It appears that jobs and opportunities alone do not quite explain a very stubborn poverty rate. I know everyone wants everything, especially stubborn social problems, to be simple and solvable. Jerry often says with his tongue in cheat, the less you know about a problem, the easier it is to solve. But the truth about that statement is it isn't true, and wishing it were won't make it so. The truth about problems like poverty cannot be solved simply or quickly, but I do believe, like hunger, solving the social disparities is in our future. Jerry also says, you will never solve a problem you do not believe can be solved. And on this, he is absolutely correct. We are in perfect alignment. We must first believe, and then we can begin to discern the how. But in order to believe, we must define reality around the challenge. Like who is in poverty, and who is hungry, and why? And some may say people are in poverty because they don't want to work. The same is said about those who are food insecure. So let's look and see. Those of who are in poverty and not working fall into just a few categories. In school, retired early, ill or disabled, home or family reasons, or they couldn't find work. Those are the five categories. And out of those five categories, that is a percentage of people who couldn't find work, only 7% or roughly about a million people are the ones who couldn't find work. The truth is most people who are able to work are working, have worked, or will work once they graduate. Knowing who we are serving is crucial to creating shared solutions that are highly effective. But here is what I know. People in poverty who are young, old, ill, or disabled are plagued by family struggles with no real resources to help them cope or real. And they need us to come alongside of them. It isn't about who is deserving of help and who isn't. At some level, it isn't even about the people in need. It is about us and whether we will help or not. It is about Where do we want to live? Who do we want to be as individuals, 
as a community, and ultimately as a country. Jerry Brisson and I are back in just a minute to unpack these thoughts and more. You come back and be with us too. Welcome back, everyone. Jerry Brisson joins me here in our WJR studio. Jerry, great to see you. And um, sorry to drop that bomb of a monologue on you. But let me just say this, too, as we come out of that, that I'm learning. Uh, I, in fact, I don't know what I don't know. But here's a, co- a topic and a conversation that I, what I do know is that we have to engage in and learn more about. You know, it really is. I, I did this slide presentation for my board when we were talking about strategic planning. And and one of the slides was how pro, how complex problems ought to be solved, right? You, mm. you, you define the problem, then you really look at, you know, what are the possible solutions, and then you pick the best solutions to, to move forward, knowing that they may or may not be right, and continuous learning keeps you moving forward, right? That that's the way to solve complex problems. But we have a lot more fun... Rather than defining a problem to argue about the problem, rather than looking at what are the opportunities to solve the problem, Uh picking the things that are popular that people want to see done, and rather than actually making step-by-step progress to, to, to actually see that the problem is being solved, do whatever we can. Right. That, that, that there's a dichotomy there about when we reach complex problems, we get frustrated with how long it takes. We get frustrated with our, you know, our worldview, which has been informed by hundreds of relationships and many years of experience. The 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 tendency to just want to keep that worldview because it's too hard to change is a really big difficulty when you're looking at complex social problems. So, you know, you mean, I, you're talking about don't confuse me with the facts yeah. kind of stuff <laughs> or or wait a minute. What about this? What about this? And it, it takes a while just to walk through. But you're not just challenging this belief of mine. I've got 50 other things connected to that belief that have been, again, informed by by research and reading by life experience, by the things I've done in my life that have been successful. There are so many things that inform how we view social problems and how they should be solved. And and the, <laughs> the one of the biggest obstacles to solving problems is people on both sides just think they're right. Now, how yeah. do you go through life? not thinking you're right <laughs> you gotta get up in the morning and get through work you got i mean you know there's something good about ha- being passionate about something that you believe in there's something good about defending the things that 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 are part of your moral compass and part of your moral fiber i mean it's not all bad right but when you're trying to deal with something like unemployment and poverty it's easier to make assumptions based on what you've seen in your business or in your life about people 
And to start to simplify the problem based on that experience than it is to actually say, wait a minute, my experience, however broad it might be, is still pretty narrow. When you look at what did you end up with? There's a million people that make up 7% of the people who are in poverty, in poverty, right? Who are not looking for work or who want to look for work and can't find it. Can't find work. Well, there's how many hundreds of millions of people in this country alone? Well, I yeah. mean, it's a it's a million is a big number, but it's also a small number, right? It's a, I mean, it's a small number. And so that's probably a lot of rambling. No, there, it's but... good rambling. It's a good <laughs> rambling because you know, just, let's just think about work, the, the role that work plays in a in a in in this idea where we're looking at people in poverty or people who are food insecure. We have said for years on this show that work is the biggest tool in the anti-hunger toolbox. And that was, that's true. My point is, it may not be as true today as it was a generation or two ago. And that's, so we can't look at this and in conversations that I have across the, you know, whether I'm in D.C. or whether I'm in Lansing with, with legislators that want to understand more about the people that we serve well, why don't they get a job? You know, okay, well, all right, let's talk about that. Let's talk about the number of people in poverty who 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 are too young to work. I mean, right now we do have labor laws for children. <laughs> right. Uh, you know, or they have worked. They're retired. They took the pandemic came, they took early retirement. And and some of those are having to come back to work because of inflation, by the way. But then you got people who are ill and disabled. Who aren't who can't work, and then you have people who are who are homebound, plagued, I would say, burdened almost because they're having to take care of a set of circumstances around the household that doesn't give them the freedom. They might be someone's only caregiver. So the problem is more is deeper and more complex. And that's why I quoted you in the monologue, you know, it's easier to solve a problem. You know, when you don't know anything about it, right. that's not exactly the <laughs> yeah, quote. Go, but, but you know, you the less to, you know about a problem, the easier it is to solve. That's the quote. I do love good, that a lot. That's the good version of it. But you know, to just say, well, just go get it. Just have them get a job. Okay. Well, wait a minute. We got to then. Then we got to unpack. You know, to get a job that pays a wage that equals a self-sufficiency lifestyle for a person or for a family, and gets them out of that that mire of poverty that's going to take some some access to opportunities that some folks may or may not have like edu- quality education you know um you you had mentioned and this is really a small microcosm of of this bigger dynamic but you had mentioned something you saw on twitter about uh somebody who had seen a food distribution a mobile food distribution um, and and when they saw the mobile food distribution, they tweeted something along the lines of, uh, you know, I don't have a car, and if that's the way food banks distribute food, I guess I'm screwed. Right. So it was a disabled uh, senior citizen who is a veteran, and and he's like, okay, so they're the the emergency allotments on on the SNAP on the food stamps as it used to be called is going away in in February of 2023 March you know for example a senior citizen who's getting over two hundred dollars 
on their bridge card here in Michigan to help with food uh, will in in March be down more than likely to somewhere around the minimum, which is like twenty three dollars a month. Yeah, and I, I'm not. I, it sounds like I'm jumping topics, but I'm really not because what I wanted to to get to is opportunity. So here's somebody that saw something. They're experiencing something in their life, and their conclusion is there's no opportunity for me here, right? Mm-hmm. So so opportunity isn't something that necessarily grabs you by the collar and drags you toward it, right? Well, that would be temptation. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent point. Yeah. Right. So, so the, 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 when you start looking at who has opportunities to do what, and we, in, when I was in Leadership Detroit, we did this exercise where, you know, there was a series of questions that were asked. And depending on how you answered those questions, you either took a step forward, stayed where you were, or took a step backwards. And the idea was that if you had, you know, a pretty stable home where, where you got, you know, educated about, how to go to college and and how that's going to happen and you had supportive parents or other people in your life who walked you through the process of making that happen in other words you had a greater likelihood that you were going to attend college than if you didn't have those things right mm-hmm. it doesn't mean people people are um not able to have those opportunities, but it's an admission that it's easier for some people than others to take advantage of opportunity. So again, when you put that whole dynamic together of what people know how to do and and what people need help understanding how to do, and then mixing into that people's habits that they've developed that make it easier or harder to do the things that need to be done in order to be particularly successful, it becomes a complex picture. And again, not to, not to overcomplicate everything, but when we look at this senior, this disabled person who saw something and then believes there's no opportunity for me, they're only partly right. Because part of what we're trying to do, part of our innovations in food banking is to look specifically at each population and say, look, if that population doesn't have as much opportunity as another, Hmm. what are the things we can do to, to take some of those hurdles away so that they can have the same opportunity as somebody else? And to think we're gonna change a problem without making some investment in the solution is faulty thinking, right? It's going to take some investment in the solution. So anyway, I know that was kind of long-winded, but... No, that's okay. Let's pick it up on the other side of this plate because uh, I think that it goes to the last part of my monologue when I said it's really not a question about them. It's really about a question about us. Yeah. So let's pick it up on the other side of the break. That's Jerry Brisson. I'm Dr. Phil Knight. We're back with you on Food First Michigan in just a moment. Contact the Food Bank Council of Michigan at fbcmich.org. Now back to more Food First Michigan with Dr. Phil Knight and Jerry Brisson. Thanks for listening. Dr. Phil Knight here with Jerry Brisson. We're, um, we're kind of in new water here for us, Jerry. Um, you know, and, and the reason we're talking about uh, the poverty, poverty rates and how they uh, affect families that we're serving that are coming to us for food. I think one of the reasons I wanted to talk about this and wanted to talk about it with you specifically is because uh, 
it's almost as if food banks in America have become the safety net to the safety net. So we probably should define what the safety net is for, for everyone, just to refresh everybody's mind. But the federal safety net is made up of a lot of programs that are available to Americans that include welfare programs to protect the poor. People are considered poor in America when, they, when their income does not reach a certain threshold. Now, we know in the, the immediate past administration, uh, that threshold was lowered significantly. Uh, you, if you made, you know, $24,000 a year, um, that was the threshold. But then it got reduced down to like $21,000 a year. And so a bunch of people were no longer qualified for these safety net programs. Well, they didn't get off the, the safety net programs like SNAP or, or housing or childcare or whatever because they all of a sudden made more money we just lowered the threshold was lowered and that kicked about 50,000 people off the uh, welfare rolls, so to speak. And it's probably a little embarrassing. And I would say shameful that that's how we got people off and said, oh, okay, well, they're, 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 they're off welfare rolls now. And it's only because we lowered, we made it harder to be on these programs. And I don't think that says very much, good about us as a nation. Yeah, I uh, again I'm I'm thinking on some of the things that you've talked about in your experience and one thing that pops right to mind is the reason why they won't change the poverty threshold is because there is no president that wants to be accused of doubling the number of people in poverty. Yeah, I haven't updated the federal poverty measure in <laughs> 70 years. And it's, that's exactly the reason, because if we if we looked at, as we've talked on the show before, your dad, my dad, they were able to buy a home. I mean, my dad said to me, just to, just to refresh it with our listeners, the American dream has changed from my generation to yours. My generation's dream was to own my home. Your generation's dream is to buy your home. And there's a big difference. Yeah. And... So many interesting conversations around the economics of all that, right? And whether or not that's a better or worse reality. But it is different, and uh, and there is a reason they call economics the dismal science, because you can't find <laughs> two people that agree about it, no matter what room you're in. And so, <laughs> so <laughs> and we've had some pretty good ones on this show. Yeah, we you know, surely some, have. Some, ec- some uh, <laughs> economists. And so, you know, Jerry, again, you know, we're talking about about this idea of how people are trapped and that we believe that and have said on the show that work is a huge pathway out of that. Rob Fowler was on the show, the former leader for the Small Business Association of Michigan, and he said, education is the surest way out of poverty and entrepreneurism is the quickest way. But they, it's all about work. Education is about getting you ready for work. And I just think that, that we want to make sure that, that we're coming alongside of people in the way that is best for them. And I know you talked about the disabled veteran in the first segment there. And, um, you know, he saw, he saw food distribution, how food banks are doing mobiles. And, and, but we're also working through the pantry network still and Choice Pantry in particular. But, you know, he just could see that and go, well, wow, I don't have any way to get there. I don't have any transportation. How am I going to get food? 
And I think now it says more about us to find innovative ways to help the people who can't get to us to get the food that they need. You know, I also think it's about t- we we are obligated to tell that person's story um, and not necessarily the way we want to tell it, but but the way it, the way it is actually happening for a real person in a real situation, and um, and so you know when you when you look at somebody who's in that situation where they're a disabled senior, the resources they need to 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 live a reasonable life are out of their imagination. They can't imagine how they're going to get the things they need right. at, at, without some incredible suffering. Um, you know, I, I know very few people who are okay with that kind of suffering, right? I mean, most people would say, we don't want that. That's not the world we want for that person or anybody, really. Uh, but but you can't stop there. You've got to go to the next step, which is, okay, how many people have have this life? And, and what are the opportunities we have to reach them? And then how does co- the community benefit through that work? Not just the individual, but the community, because most individuals don't want to be singled out as, as needing sympathy. They don't want to be singled out as less than, right? They see themselves as a important person and somebody who, who belongs in community and has something to contribute. And my belief is that that's more, way more often true. Um, and so the motivation is to say we make an investment in getting a person like that the help they need because it's better for us all not just for that person right so so when you help a disabled senior get the food they need you are decreasing the cost of health care right off the bat right you're you're there's a there's a community benefit in the lower cost of health care you are also decreasing the number of instances where that person is going to call out for help and be helped by some public servant, whether it's a police officer or whether it's a, an ambulance or whether it's a social worker, the more often that person has to call out for help because they're so desperate that that is the only option that they know of, the more it costs all of us to manage a problem that could probably be handled with greater dignity and with lower cost. And so as we approach this work, we don't approach it only from the standpoint of charity. We know that charity is important. It says a lot about us when we're charitable, but we approach it from the standpoint of what is better for all of us. And in doing that, we bring more dignity to the person that needs help because we're acknowledging they are an important part of the fabric of society and we recognize that and we're helping them not because they're needy, but because they're important. We're investing in people, not just helping people. I really like the distinction that you make there. I, I really do. I think it's, it's, you know, that it's vitally important. Uh, there's lots to pick out here, um, you know, about how do we create this systemic approach rather than one-off solutions or or you know, band-aids, so to speak, on, on gaping wounds. Uh, but, you know, Jerry, in the, ne- in the next segment, I want us to unpack a little bit about why what food banks do in America and here in Michigan in particular really matters to these problems for people who are trapped in poverty, for education outcomes, for health care. Why, why does what we do really matter? And one population I want us to focus on that I think gets left off quite a bit is that there is a group of people in, in, in and out of poverty 
that about 30% of the people who are food insecure, according to Feeding America, are not eligible for any of these safety net programs. So the only people that they have to come alongside of them are folks like you and the rest of our food banks across the state. So I think this it's, it's, a, it's a good conversation, and I want to continue it with you, Jerry Rasan. I'm Dr. Phil Knight. We're going to be back together in just a moment. Food first, Michigan. Once again, here's Phil and Jerry. Thanks for listening, everyone. Jerry Brisson, Dr. Phil Knight here with you on Food First Michigan. We record this show in the Fisher Building at WJR Studios, and then it gets turned into a podcast, and we're pretty excited about that. Over 75,000-plus subscribers to our podcast, and many more listeners to that on Sunday nights at 9 p.m. here on WJR. So... It's uh, we're probably going to hear from some of you. <laughs> we hope we do. Yeah. We hope we do. You know, we're all learning, right? Yeah. We're all learning and growing and, and trying to find our way through, you know, solving some things that have never been solved. And of course, that means there's going to be lots of opinions and opinions are good, right? Well, you know, um, I think probably a part of this conversation about poverty and the role that food insecurity plays in it. And I want you to unpack this a little bit for us. But I want to just get this out of the way here. So we're we're talking. We've been talking about the role of work in 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 some of this, its role in helping solve this problem. Um, one of the and we talked about the group that's the group that's maybe not working and that all that we defined all that. What we haven't said, and I want to go ahead and say it, is yes, there is a absolute personal responsibility that everybody has to solve this problem. And that includes those of us who are blessed and got more than we actually need. And we understand that sometimes those things that come to us aren't absolutely for us and they should flow through us to help other people, whether that's time, talent, or treasure. And then there are folks who are, who are trapped in poverty and they have a personal responsibility as well. So I just want everybody to kind of grasp that, that we're looking at this from bookends uh, to see that, that everybody has a responsibility. And that's why we're trying to create a movement and not just do a radio show. That's true. Uh, the only other thing I'd like to say about personal responsibility is if you make if you turn that around and you look at the problems in your own life and you say to yourself, well, you know what? I am the cause of most of my distress. That's what personal responsibility looks like, right? Mm -hmm. When you say someone else is the cause of my distress, that's what personal responsibility doesn't look like, right? So I just caution people when they start talking about personal responsibility to look at their own life and the problems that they need to solve in their own life, the challenges they have to solve those problems, and to say to themselves, really? So the best thing you think people can do is just leave you alone and let you solve your own problems and expect you to do it with no help. Hmm. That's the that's the best solution for you. And I'm going to tell you, for every one person that that works for, there are a hundred that with a little bit of help, they would get a lot further, a lot faster. One of the things you asked me, doctor, on the break was, why does this work matter? Mm -hmm. What is it about this work that matters? And here's what I think matters. When we walk with people on their journey, 
when we take their hand and say, you know, don't worry, take our hand, we're going to walk together. We're going to make something happen for you that's going to that's going to be easier and help you manage your life in a way that's going to whatever your definition of success is, it's going to bring you closer to that. Right. What we are doing is saying we're not taking away their personal responsibility, but we're saying that personal responsibility and a little help goes a lot farther, a lot faster than personal responsibility alone. And it does matter. Yeah, I think you're right. And the impact for us, Jerry, and the, in the Food Bank Council and our seven members that serve all of Michigan, and then collectively as Feeding America, we serve every county in the nation. It, what difference does the food make? Well, I think it makes a couple of differences. And, and we're trying to make the difference that we can make. For example, we're pretty good at getting food from A to B, and we're learning how to get food to people who can't get to the food. And maybe we'll have a little bit of time to talk about that. But, but here's the thing I, that, that really matters to me in that is we're not going to try to do something that we're not really good at. We're not going to do financial education. We will not weatherize anyone's windows. Right. <laughs> it's not going to happen. You don't want me to weatherize you your do windows. Not. I promise but you. But you want you want gleaners and <clears throat> and feeding and uh, Food Bank of Eastern Michigan and all the other food banks. You want them doing what they do well. Yeah. Because when they do well and they get food to people who don't have access to food for whatever the reason. It can help take a trade-off, a financial, economic insecurity decision that they have to make off the table. And the other part of that is knowing that our work matters. You know, someone could honestly say, well, prove it. Show me that it matters. How many people got help from you and are now better off? And that's a great question. We need to have the answer to the question, how do we know people are better off? And over the years, we have gotten better and better and better at understanding who's better off. So again, let's talk about kids in school. There is so much research that points to how much better off kids are in school when they're properly nourished. It's now without question. Nobody even questions it anymore, right? So that's a group that we know is better off. We can see test scores. We can see stress behaviors. We can see, you know, the they're thriving in their homes, all kinds of other things that we can actually point to to say, here's a group that it clearly matters and research shows it. We can do it with healthcare. We know that people who are diabetic and who have access to healthy food have a better life because of our work than if we weren't there to give them access to to healthy food. There is research that points to A1Cs going down and people needing less emergency room visits and people spending less time in the hospital, right? This isn't just a good feeling type of work. It is work that we have proven population by population makes a difference. And we need to keep doing that, right? We are we are obligated, if we're going to ask for your support, to tell you that your support has made a difference, not just today, but for the long term. And we're better at it than we've ever been. Wow, I got to unpack a lot of that. So 1969 was the last White House conference to the one that just happened a few months ago. And it was in that conference we got the National School Lunch Program. Think about that. 1969. Yeah. So we didn't have that before then. So that really ought to impact our thinking right there. Um, you know, that, so that, then you talk about the impact that the food has on health care. You know, our own Dr. Opal 
Dawn Opal has led a project with South Michigan Food Bank, and the results of that, a fresh food pharmacy being embedded in the federally qualified health center in that clinic has has had outstanding results. I can't tell you what those are. She's got to come back on the show and, and, and do that. But it's been out. The food has been has had a tremendous, tremendous impact. But then, you know, Jerry, you talk about education, you talk about health care, but people who are mired in poverty. What do we say? If you're hungry, you got one problem, right? And if you can't, if your mind's not free of that toxic stress of what am I going to eat and what am I going to give my family, then your mind's not free to think about how do I change my circumstances? How do I lift my family out of these set of circumstances? And that's part of the power of the food because the food is the food, right? But the food also comes packaged with hope. And a belief that people want good things for themselves and for the world, too. Right? It's, it's, we do the work in part because the people we serve inspire us. They're, they are amazing. They are figuring out complicated things to figure out. And I would say to anyone, spend a year in poverty and then tell me how easy it was to get out of it. Well, there have been a few of those studies, too. Right. Yeah. So, well, great thoughts from your side of the microphone. I appreciate your thoughts very much. We're going to take a quick break, and Jerry and I are going to come back and wrap up this edition of Food First Michigan. Saw Dr. Phil Knight here with you on Food First Michigan. You have decorated your vehicle. Yeah, we haven't talked about that. I got a vanity <laughs> plate. I did. I ordered one. You know, my my the, the license plate I had for a long, long time, the paint was actually peeling off it, so I needed to get a new one. And I could have ordered the same license plate number, but I didn't. I didn't. I went and I got uh, one of the Mackinac Bridge plates, which I've always liked. And here's what the license plate number is, F. Zero zero because you can't use O in Michigan. F zero zero D one S T. That's my new license plate. Food first. I am so excited about it. I was sending pictures to everybody about it. Uh, yeah, that was. It's pretty cool. It came last week, and uh, and I was pretty happy to be able to get that done. I was just shocked that nobody else had it yet. Right. Where's all our listeners? I figured at least ten people would have tried it. Right. At least at least your sister or mine. So. <laughs> Yeah, that's the truth, Jerry. That's a great that's a great thing. And you know, and it's not just talk, right? It's not just the name of the show. We actually really do believe it that if you can help people take hunger off the table, then their lives going to get better and it's going to get better quicker. And that's kind of the role that we have. As again, we're going to stay in our lane pretty much. But we're going to talk about some things that help that keep people trapped in these circumstances as well. And one of those topics has been poverty today on this show. Um, We started out talking about the role of work. We'll probably end up with that in the food for thought. But the other thing, too, is there are a lot of programs in the safety net designed to help people struggling. 
And what I think one of the conversations we have to have in the future is how are these programs administered and are they aligned correctly for maximum benefit, not for the organizations, not for the food banks, not for the other organizations that are serving, but for the people, the families we are serving. And if they're not misaligned and if they're not being administered with a high level of effectiveness, then we need to raise our voice. Yeah, I agree 100%. We are accountable, and we're accountable because it's not our money, right? If it's a state department, it is the taxpayer's money. If it is our donors, it's their money that's paying for this work and that's helping us serve the community, and we are accountable to the people that invest in us. But more importantly, we're accountable to the people who depend on us and count on us to help them manage their life because at the end of the day, our responsibility to the community is our number one responsibility. I agree, Jerry, and it's time for a little food for thought. Work is good, but it is not a solution unto itself. I'm convinced that the best things we can do is to help people have access to opportunities wherever they may be. We can also help align programs that are already in existence, modernize them, and administer them with a highly effective manner. That's a lot of work, but it's the work. And Jerry often says, you can't gripe about the work. So if that's the work, then let's be about the work, about solving the problem of hunger in America, and Michigan in particular, by helping people have access to the food and the opportunities that they both want and need. And we do that here by putting food first, folks. Food first. Food First Michigan, presented by Farm Bureau Insurance of Michigan and by the Food Bank Council of Michigan, creating a food-secure state.